take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20, the book of Exodus chapter 20, we're continuing in our study of Exodus, which will be culminated for us looking at the law and the gospel past the Ten Commandments in verse 18 through 21, but this morning we'll be looking at the eighth command that's found in verse 15. So while you're turning there real quick, um, pretty sure they're out of town given the message that I received yesterday, but I think we should duly note this, Don and Mary Rice have been married 60 years. Yeah. <laughs> and it is my understanding they're in North Carolina to celebrate that. So, pretty cool. Shout out to Don and Mary. Um, so, let's look now at Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. It is the eighth word You shall not steal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have come this morning to gather you on the first day of the week, Jesus having risen from the dead, Jesus, we give you thanks for your active obedience in living perfectly the law. We thank you for your passive obedience that you died for our transgressions and where we sinned against you. We thank you that, Jesus, that you were the sacrifice that your Father accepted on our behalf. And so because of you, we have a righteousness that is not attained on our own. And we would certainly ask this morning, Lord, if you would strengthen us in the sanctifying work of your word and your spirit. And Lord, you would regenerate and make alive hearts so that they might trust in Jesus. We ask this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You shall not steal. Pretty, pretty simple, straightforward command that's, that's given here. By simple definition, stealing is taking something that does not belong to you without permission. I'm sure all of you parents teach your children not to steal. Um, I remember vividly my dad setting me down and talking to me about stealing and talking talking to me about borrowing equipment from people in the neighborhood and to see to it that you returned it better than it was given to you and all these kinds of things. And um, obviously, it's pretty wrong, and the world, I think, would recognize it's, it's wrong to steal. The early interpretations to this text tried to associate it to something specific, um, and 
most of that early on had to do with kidnapping. And I think that was probably a reason for that because given the context, we know that God's people have come out of Egypt and in essence, this is what had taken place with Egypt toward Israel. They were kidnapped and stolen from. And so it, it seemed to make sense, but certainly that does not cover everything um, because really stealing happened in the garden. You think back to the book of Genesis where God tells Adam um, you know, to, to basically have dominion and authority over everything. He was like a viceroy over all that God had given him. And he told him, yet of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. And of course, we all know how that went. Um, some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, wasn't it Eve that took the first bite? If you really look at the text there in Genesis, Adam is standing there. He's standing there silently. And he's not protecting the very mate that God had given him, the helpmate, to rule over all of God's creation. And so you know this to be true because when we look at the New Testament in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, the Bible tells us that whereas one man sin entered the world. And sometimes, you know, people hear... Uh, I think they read the text. I don't think, you know, sound Christians do. But they almost get this picture of a, a God, you know, that's really uptight. You know, they simply took a bite. Um, but that's really not the setting that's there. Adam, um, I know that, and you've heard this many times from this pulpit, is referred to by... Um, R.C. Sproul is a cosmic rebellion. He had a seedy, rebellious heart. And ultimately through that, they took from God what rightly belonged to God, and they disobeyed the very command that God had given them. And so I don't think you want to bypass that because we understand really this is how the whole redemptive process unfolds when you're looking at the fall in the garden. And it really was a deep-seated rebellion that brought Adam to that place to, to steal from God. Um, and then, of course, given the context, once again, that Israel was coming out and God was creating for himself a people the people of Israel, God gives what's called the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments or Ten Words. And as we've walked through this, we've kind of clearly seen that God's people are to first of all love God and, and then by example of that or demonstration of that, they're to love their neighbor or Loving your neighbor stems from loving God. 
And when we get to this text, it's a simple command. It's straightforward. You shall not steal. Israel was called upon by Yahweh not to steal. And they certainly understood what that would have been because the Egyptians had stolen from them and had placed them in bondage for over 400 years. Rather, God's people were to live the opposite of stealing. And even as you move through the law in God shaping and designing His people, they were to be a people that were generous. They were to be a people that gave. Literally, as you examine the Old Testament, everything written in the law for Israel was to be gracious and to be generous. Just the opposite, of course, of someone who is stealing. Yahweh created this group of people to reflect His love for His creation. And really, when you're moving through God's relationship, how God intended for them to be, they were to reflect God's goodness to the world and to the nations because they were people as they were created in the image of God. The expansion of what everything will uh, kind of create this definition on stealing, we read from the Westminster Confession of Faith this morning. Uh, our elder Brett did there. I want to just move through this in a general way because it moved from like a singular thing where Stealing was to be attached to one particular thing, and initially that was the kidnapping. It clearly becomes much broader, and I'm sure when you're thinking of stealing, you're thinking of a number of things that can happen. Let me read to you from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 110 says this, what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? Please, please listen to this closely. He forbids not only outright theft and robbery, punishable by law, but in God's sight, theft also includes cheating and swindling our neighbor by schemes made to appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, he forbids all greed and pointless squanderings of God's gifts. Martin Luther, when preaching a message on you shall not steal, said this. He created this definition. It is a person who steals not only when he robs a man's strong box or his pocket, but also when he takes advantage of his neighbor at the market, in a grocery shop, at a butcher's stall, in his wine and beer cellar, his workshop, in short, wherever business is transacted and money is exchanged for goods or labor. I think I read from about four or five commentaries on 
this phrase, you shall not steal. And really, every theologian I read gave a very broad interpretation of the eighth command. And I'm going to really kind of narrow it to one area, though it does clearly, I think, cover all these areas that the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Catechism, and certainly when Martin Luther, the great reformer, was preaching this. You shall not steal, not only is just taking that which doesn't belong to you, but it forbids greed, which is stealing with the eyes of the heart. Of course, we are all, for the most part, I would think, maybe not all of us, but we're living in America, and in America we are very well of what the dollar is probably the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. And the Bible focuses a lot uh, on money. And what's very interesting about it, when you think about it, is he, it, it creates a, a, a lot of contrast between riches and wealth and money. Now think about this with me for a second. Riches are a blessing from God coming from God's hand. But the love of money is a spiritual danger. Scripture also says it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet we all know this, in the kingdom of God there are rich people and poor people that had lived on the earth. Scripture never gives us just one sentence on money, but just the mere mention of money to you does something to you. It places something on your mind and heart. And that's going to be part of what I want to draw our attention to for, your, for the sake of this sermon for us um, who are the church, those who are the believers of Jesus and following Yahweh. Kevin DeYoung wrote this, said the prophets, Jesus, and apostles say little positive to the rich, but sympathize with the poor. And this, of course, is true. When you think about the council in Acts chapter 15, and then, and then there, there's another like uh, dispute in Galatians chapter 2, Ultimately, the coming together is to see to it that the gospel goes to those who are poor. And yet, on the other hand, the garden is a, is a place of paradise. And the new heavens and the new earth, when you read you know, both of the poetic language in Isaiah and then over in, of course, the book of Revelation, it is opulent. It's a place with a lot of feasting and prosperity. The eighth command for us tells us that you shall not steal. This, of course, is God's law, as all of the other commandments are God's law. The prohibition of doing bad things, though, by implication, calls upon us to do good things. So, you're going to be a person who lives this, your life stealing or giving. 
You're going to be a person who is given to greed or generosity. And I think those are the things that we want to consider as those who are the, the people of God. Those who are the believers of Jesus and seek to love him and to follow him. Now, um, so everybody relaxes here for just a moment. Uh, I've been in church, as I mentioned to you last week, since two weeks. That was my first Sunday. And uh, I've heard a lot of messages on giving. And of course, because of uh, radio and television, there's a lot said about uh, giving and money. And this is by no means going to be any kind of thing that's exhaustive about it. But there is things about money that all of us need to wrestle with. Because we all want and need some money. Right? I think it's in Proverbs where it's said, Lord, give me enough where I won't curse you, and yet don't give me too much where I won't forget you. That's the kind of the gist, right? We're all striving to live with a godliness, with contentment, with those things with, that we have. And really, you can be very poor and greedy, and you can also be very rich and not greedy. There's all types because the first aspect of this between you and God is going to measure your heart. It's going to measure, um, and that becomes reflected in how you live your life. I will tell you this unequivocally that Christ Community Church is a great giving church as I've ever been a part of or known of. And, and so, please, don't turn a deaf ear to what I'm about to give you, to share with you. Because you need to consider for yourself, are you a generous person? Or are you a person that's, that's greedy? Money in Scripture is simply a tool it's a tool of responsibility, and it's a tool that the Bible says measures our heart. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Money measures our heart. And back to the Decalogue, it will measure our heart in how we love God and love our neighbor. Not exhaustively, but it is an appropriate application to, to look at. Think of this, because we know God's people struggled when they had plenty. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, God says to his people, and this is the question that is posed, will a man rob God? And yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? The people were aghast. How have we robbed you, God? In your tithes and contributions. 
Now, that's obviously the last book that's written in our English Bible uh, of the Old Testament. But listen to the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give, each one must give, the Bible says, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So it's more than just the capacity of giving. It's to give with a proper heart, not, as Paul tells the church of Corinth here, not reluctantly or doing it out of compulsion. Like somebody could perceive this to be the pastor's browbeating us to give. Man, that is not what I'm doing. But I am challenging you to consider what you're doing with your money in light of eternity. Giving to God should be first motivated out of love for God. It's out of a love for God, which really is central to everything we do as Christian. But when you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, giving is a result really of, of three things. Basically, I've just read from them. Number one, though, is giving is an act of worship. So when you're looking back to the Old Testament and the people would go to the temple, they always brought the proper sacrifice given um, the season. Paul tells then the church at Corinth again on this instruction on giving in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, upon the first day of the week, each man, meaning all the people, are to bring a gift. It's clear right, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, that giving is a part of an act of how we worship. And failing to give is, I mean, you could call it any one of a number of things, but if you're being honest, you're robbing God. You're robbing God because that's what God calls it. And I think that last thing is tied to the third thing that I want to mention to you as we continue on to this, is everything that you get in your life, all material things, all money that comes into your life, has come from God's good hand. Deuteronomy chapter 8, it is God or Yahweh who gives you the power to have or make wealth. And so when we're all considering our money, what we're thinking of is God has made me a steward of my life for how I live my life and how I handle um, my money. And it's appropriate that I utilize my money out of love for God, that I'm required by God to be generous that God does not want me to withhold from giving to him because in essence what I'm doing, and we can call it any what, anything that you want to call it, but that's what I'm doing is robbing God. And of course I want to do this because God's made me a steward 
of his grace. And again, grace, we know what that is. It's unmerited favor. It's an undeserved benefit. God has placed in my life the riches of his grace that will go into eternity and the scripture forces us to wrestle with our heart attitudes and beyond our heart attitudes, what do we do with our money? Which is the opposite, of course, of stealing. And man, we, we, we understand what stealing is in our society. I mean, my goodness, every institution clearly is, is attempting to do it. You can't name an institution, which would even be the umbrella of the church that hasn't gone corrupt in areas to, to rob and steal from people. But I want you to think about this, about Jesus. Jesus never stole anything. Nothing. And Jesus has given us everything. Everything that you have, which includes even the breath that you're taking now. And so again, when you're looking at the law, I want you to think about this. Apart from Jesus, if you give any man a rule, he'll obey it, he thinks he will, and embrace it in self-righteousness, or he'll despise it in rebellion. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need the gospel. Because Jesus lived a life that was opposite of stealing he only gave. Jesus died for things that we have done and for things that we have left undone, as the confession uh, calls us to. And at the cross, on our behalf, there was a double imputation. A double Imputation. I didn't say amputation. A double imputation. On the cross, Jesus took my sin and bore my sin and shame and guilt. But also at the cross, Jesus gave to me His righteousness. Christ's righteousness is imputed for those who believe. And so, when we're thinking about our salvation, we often think about the passive righteousness of Christ, which is he suffered for our sin, but we also, and just as importantly, need his active righteousness because Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all things pertaining to righteousness. This is why he goes to John the Baptist. He tells John the Baptist, hey, I need you to baptize me. And he goes, well, Lord, I can't baptize you. You know, you're, you're the Lord of heaven. He goes, hey, do what I tell you to do. It is necessary that I fulfill all righteousness. Jesus didn't have to be baptized, you know, as a part of salvation to um, um, remit his sin, he was sinless. But Jesus got baptized more than just to be an example. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. 
We need a double imputation. We don't just need our sin forgiven for those things that we commit, but those things we fail to commit that are necessary for righteousness. So the church, you and I, are being reconciled to God by both. By both Christ's passive obedience and by his active obedience. Jesus' passive obedience died for sin. Jesus' active obedience gives us his righteousness because he obeyed the law perfectly. And we need Christ's active obedience as much as we need his passive obedience. Now before I continue with some instruction about the confession and pardon, you know, I do want to address anyone who might be sitting here that, that doesn't know Jesus. Because the same gospel that the church was saved by, it, it holds true for you in this sense. You need a righteousness that you can't attain and that you can't accomplish. And you need that righteousness because the scripture says that you are a sinner, both not the activity of sin, but all sinned as the elder Zach read from Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 17. All of us sinned in the headship of Adam. We were born into sin. You need not only your sin forgiven, but you need a righteousness that can only be attained by what God did through His Son, Jesus. And so if you come to a place where you recognize that in acknowledgement of that, because repentance when you're coming into the faith is not this. Repentance is not preparing and cleaning up your life. Like, I need to quit doing this and quit doing this. You can't quit that. It's an acknowledgement that you are a sinner in need of a Savior to provide a righteousness that you cannot attain on your own, but is found only in the person and the work of Christ. But what do I do to that? What do I do with the gospel? I think it's only appropriate that you need to strongly consider your own salvation. Because apart from Jesus, no man inherits the kingdom of God. It's not until you acknowledge your own sinfulness and your need for forgiveness that you can obtain the mercy that is only provided in God, which is ultimately found in Christ alone. You must trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin. And no amount of giving of money, no amount of attending of service or reading your Bible is going to save you. You need Jesus. That's the beginning place of life. And we pray this morning 
that you'll acknowledge your need of a Savior and that you'll trust in Christ alone to save you. But let's, let's, let's deal with something as a church, just something to think about. We don't want to ever passively look at our liturgy during the confession and pardon time. And I'm addressing now the church, those of us who are redeemed. Because even for us, as we, we go and we listen uh, to the scripture that was read this morning from our elder, Andrew, and from the Ang Anglican uh, Book of Common Prayer, We don't use this time, right, to think about the sin we committed and to repent, and i got to try harder. That is not how we're to think about this. Rather, we're to think about the repentance of our sin and to rest in Christ's accomplishment on our behalf. That's where we find our rest. We're to thank God for His Son's righteousness that has been imputed to us. We're to rejoice and thank God in preparation for the hearing of the Word because the Scripture says if we confess our sin, God, our holy God, is faithful to us and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're to rest on Jesus, not that I can do better. Now, I know probably a lot of you are sitting there all alarmed. Are you saying that's a free ticket to sin? Absolutely not. You're with us any length of time. You know we're not antinomian. God forbid and in no way. But the confession and pardon is not a try harder of our own strength. It's a resting and confession of what I am and thanking God for Christ's imputed righteousness to us. And it's only by his resurrected life can I obey Jesus. So God help us to rest in Christ and to trust in Jesus, to be thankful for the life he's given us, to be a good steward of God's redeeming grace. And as Christ first loved us, let's love, trust, and obey Jesus. Let's pray. Father, now as we come to the, to the table, Lord, in consideration for the church, we certainly want to analyze our own hearts toward our own money, how we're spending it and what we're using it on. Convict, I ask, Lord, those who refuse to give. Help them to see that, that giving of their money or material wealth is, of course, a reflection of where their, their heart is. It's an act of worship. Failing to do so is to rob God. Lord, help us to repent. Help us to turn to You. 
Help us to trust in Jesus for everything. For not only our eternal salvation, but for the rest and the pursuit of our own lives. God, help us not to love our money, but to love You and to be a faithful steward of those things that You've given us in a materialistic way. God, we ask, by the power and the work of your son Jesus who died for sinners that you would awaken hearts that are dead to you. That you will help people to see the error of their way and their own sin. That you will grant them the gift of repentance and faith to rest and believe and to trust in you alone, Lord Jesus, for their salvation. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.